This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. If we thought about it in an ideal state, in terms of what we're all trying to build toward, care at home is an enabler to make sure that you are truly moving patients to the right care setting, right care location at the right point in time. That's really a well-humming, optimized, operationally efficient system of care. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I am your host, Jamie Zage. At SG2, well over a year ago, we introduced the concept of care at home. And increasingly, we're getting asked about how to make the business case for care at home programs. I've invited two of my colleagues, Brianna Motley and Joe Marr, to help me talk through the various levers that organizations can pull to build a potentially sustainable care at home program. I want to first briefly review with our audience how we at SG2 define care at home. We have divided care at home into four key quadrants, on-demand care, chronic care at home, continuing care at home, and acute care at home. On-demand is largely those encounter-based services such as urgent care, labs, other things like that. Chronic care at home includes primary care at home as well as specialty care. It's really more longitudinal, although it could be as short as just a couple of visits, or it can be truly chronic disease management over the longitude of the patients, sometimes the end of their life. It includes things as well, though, as like infusion and dialysis at home. We even see mobile integrated health falling into this space. Continuing care at home, this is really recovery at home, like rehab at home and skilled nursing at home. It also includes quality of life services like palliative care and hospice services. Acute care at home, probably the one that we hear the most about and is probably seen the most in the news, is hospital at home and even includes observation at home. We do at times get asked about home health nursing and remote patient monitoring, where those fit into that care at home landscape. Well, we see those along with virtual health and other digital capabilities as really being foundational. They're part of the capabilities that will help you deliver care at home more effectively for your organization. Given that landscape, Brianna, what's the current payment outlook in each of these four quadrants in the care at home landscape? The payment outlook in summary at the highest level is relatively uncertain. And certainly there are pockets where payment is a little bit more certain as we think about the four quadrants and other places where it's really not certain. And you have to get a little bit creative in terms of how you think about the business model and really thinking about justifying your investment in the care at home space. If we break down the four quadrants, then maybe we start with on demand. Again, that's things like virtual urgent care, lab at home, those encounter-based services. We tend to find that in terms of payment, those are primarily billable services that can also be cash pay. We can all think back to a time when virtual urgent care services were pay on demand or pay per visit. That's how we would characterize that quadrant at the highest level. Thinking about chronic care at home, this is an interesting one. And there are a lot of different types of care at home models within this quadrant. This is one that we tend to find is paid by or focused on through risk-based payment models. So there are many demonstration project programs like Independence at Home or Primary Care First that fall within this bucket and provide reimbursement or payment through that methodology. But there are also accountable care contracts, Medicare shared savings programs that provide funding when we think about longitudinal patient management of chronic conditions. And then certainly things like dialysis at home have reimbursement behind them. 
Continuing care in the home is a different story. There are pockets of billable services, and we've seen organizations focus exclusively on those services, whether that be outpatient rehab at home or physical therapy, hospice, and palliative care. But then there are other innovative models where the payment isn't as certain or as well-defined. So things like SNP at home, you know, some parts of that can be billable. But if we think about true comprehensive SNF care in the home, that's not reimbursed yet. So it is a little bit of a, a mixed picture there. And then finally, acute care at home. Many of our members are aware of the acute care at home waiver that provides reimbursement for that service. Obviously, that is short term at the moment. It, it will rely on Congress. You attend that waiver program for long-term reimbursement. It's a little bit of an uncertain picture, uncertain landscape there. But we also know there are commercial programs that are contracting for the hospital at home program. There's also an opportunity to bundle that care. And we've seen reimbursement through a 30-day episode that includes hospital at home as well. As we look at the four quadrants at a whole, there's not one way to summarize what the payment outlook is, other than to say that it's mixed and it's uncertain. One of the places where we see care at home as a whole making a lot of sense is if you are an organization that is more oriented towards value-based care, value-based payment models, this is where investment in care at home starts to make a lot more sense. No, that's right, Brianna. You even mentioned, especially in the primary care at home and, and even to a certain extent, the continuing care at home, value-based care is often the foundation for a lot of organizations that helps them make the get business case moving forward. Joe, value-based care is one of your many areas of expertise. Can you speak to why care at home is such an important part of value-based care models? Yeah, because value-based care is really moving away from the traditional fee-for-service reimbursement per case basis financial model, and it's more closely aligning with what value-based care is, which is aligning around the premium dollar model. It's reimagining, reevaluating where there's opportunity to create and capture value in the healthcare ecosystem. And value-based care aligns well with care at home in that it looks to better curb total spend and better manage populations. Brianna mentioned the primary care first model for primary care practices that are taking advantage of this partially capitated model to reinvest in capabilities and get rewarded for keeping patients out of the hospital, out of the acute patient setting. That's a great example of where these payments can align in value-based care with some of these more advanced models, like some of the care at home models. Similarly, a lot of this work is done around managing chronic disease patients, keeping those patients out of the more acute settings. And this often shows up in total cost of care spend, which is where hospitals that are in ACO type models, shared savings arrangements, have a strong opportunity to capture some of this value that they're creating. That's great. Value-based care has been really important in terms of helping to drive lower costs for our payers in particular. But if we think about it from a health system perspective, to get to some of these sustainable models, we need to think about other cost levers that we can pull. Joe and Brianna, all three of us come at this from different perspectives, but what are some of the other ways that we can pull different levers to change the overall financial outlook when we think about care at home? There are two components in addition to value-based care that I think about here. Healthcare is a high capital cost infrastructure and high investment dollars go into achieving growth. This is a chance to reevaluate that and potentially optimize current capacity, taking those higher cost settings in patient, acute, ED, ambulatory settings with longer term, lower cost settings where there's less infrastructure investment once you get past the technology components. 
but it allows organizations to reevaluate capital planning, site of care, physical footprint planning, and still serving patient needs. The second component that comes to mind is the ability to be that digital front door, that ability to create value by aligning lives. We think about total cost of care, alignment around the premium dollar, a big portion of how healthcare systems can be successful going forward is that total population they serve. This is a great mechanism for creating that digital front door and allowing uh, new access channels for patients. And then the hope is then create some stickiness with a patient population that you might not otherwise have had access to in the past. Building a little bit on that, Joe, I love that you brought up the digital front door and the opportunity to bring additional patients into the system. Part of lowering the cost of care is being able to scale across a broader patient population. And when you are able to widen that front door and also triage patients to the right care setting, that certainly serves to lower the overall cost of care. Tied to that and also tied to your comments about being able to optimize capital. And certainly we know that's something that is sensitive for systems right now in the financial environment that we're operating in. There's just really a potential to improve efficiency if you think about care at home comprehensively and putting all of the nuts and bolts and pieces into place. Those foundational elements from virtual visits to remote monitoring to really that digital platform. If we thought about it in an ideal state, in terms of what we're all trying to build toward, care at home is an enabler to make sure that you are truly moving patients to the right care setting, right care location at the right point in time. So if you have that platform in place and you're able to, in real time, understand what a patient's clinical need is and triage them to the most appropriate care location, whether that be in the home or in bricks and mortar care settings or facilities, then that's really a well-humming, optimized, operationally efficient system of care. And that's aspirational. I don't think anyone is operating like that today, but that's what we're all working toward. And I think if we can get there, then in theory, right care, right place also serves to lower that total cost of care. The other piece is a revenue lever as well, and that if you can open up some capacity in your bricks and mortar facilities without spending $2 million a bed, then it gives you an opportunity to drive additional revenue as well, which can help to make the case for the investments in some of the infrastructure pieces that you need to do care at home as well. That absolutely ties back to Joe's point about optimizing capital. We all know that acuity is rising. Ideally, if we do have patients in the right care locations and we're able to keep patients who don't need to be in the hospital out of the hospital through better care management, then we won't have to spend capital on additional beds. We haven't brought up the staffing component, though. Jamie, we talked at a high level about virtual visits and remote monitoring. Obviously, staffing is part of that. No one has excess staffing. I'm sure there's some pockets out there. But excess staffing is a true challenge right now. That's a lever as well as we think about specifically labor costs and how that's escalating. I'm sure you guys have thoughts on where the savings or what the lever is there as well. If you have to pay traveling nurses or traveling physicians on the inpatient side in order to meet the demand that you're seeing, um, assuming you've got the facility space, those can be really escalated costs even above the going rate for salary. But you've also got to make sure that you've got the staff to provide it in the home space. We've talked about the retention side of workforce as well, and where if you've got individuals who are just ready to step away from providing acute 
acute care in the hospital space, if you can retain them in a different care model, in a different environment of delivering that care, that can be another place where you can save on those staffing turnover costs. Yeah, absolutely. We heard a great example the other day of what's the Home Depot of healthcare where the 65 to 75 year olds who want to stay engaged in their craft and their passion and engagement with other people as well. What can they do or how can they contribute to overall care delivery? Maybe this is it. Anything to add, Joe? Jamie, you mentioned the partnership component of this and doing this with the right partners. That is something we talk a lot about with the system of care. And this is often a different partner set than what we think about with our local ambulatory network of independent providers and other ancillary services that are geographically proximate. Now we're dealing with a new range of partners, often that are new to the market, new business models. So just making sure that we're vetting that thoroughly, not just the economics of it, but also looking at the integration of it, especially if we want to succeed in value-based contracts, ensuring that there's alignment and components and connectivity for those patient handoffs and that service can really set us up for success in BBC if we do this well. That's a really good point. And how we structure those partnerships can also be another element of determining what that cost and that revenue structure is. Yeah, it's definitely going back to the capital outlay. It's a lower outlay to proceed with some of these partners. We can move quicker with some of these partners as well in the economics, especially if they've developed a scale approach, a way to function with the payers, generate opportunity. It can definitely provide a lot of opportunity for revenue reimbursement payment that otherwise might not be available to us in our local markets today. So I really look to the expertise and how proven the business models are when possible as I try and help think through where these opportunities are strongest, where these partnerships are potentially strongest. One of the things that I know that we've heard our colleague Heidi Pandia talk about too is a per-click arrangement where you're working with your partner, but you're only paying for the services that you're using. It's not a flat fee, but it's based on the number of patients you're serving. That's one approach to sort of manage the cost of the partnership, especially in that really high-intensity care-at-home, hospital-at-home arrangement. That's absolutely right. And the flexibility to be able to, from a per-click standpoint, be selective about when you're triaging patients, especially some of our members who are trying to think about what are those capacity valves as we enter the winter season. That's where a per-click model or being able to adjust based on your needs without having to own and run and operate a full-fledged program, at least in the short term, can be really beneficial. I think the other thing that maybe we haven't talked about, but certainly comes into play is thinking about what patients you're serving and really being thoughtful around stratifying the patient population and understanding where you can have the greatest impact when it comes to a cost and revenue standpoint. We were talking with a member recently who was pretty intentional about number one, thinking specifically about their at-risk population, and then number two, focusing on that 20% of patients who drives the majority of the cost. And scaling your program to focus on those patients that have the greatest degree of need and where you can make the greatest impact. And that ties back to some of the levers already mentioned in terms of opening up capacity and being able to make sure that within your precious acute facility resources, you're 
dedicating those to patients who do truly need to be there. On the flip side, from a cost of operating the model standpoint, we don't have unlimited resources. And so making sure that you're maximizing the investment, both from a technology standpoint and from a human capital standpoint that you're putting into play by focusing on those patients that are potentially costing you the most is another lens to look at this through. I think at the highest level, this is hard stuff. We are really innovating on how we're delivering care. There is a lot of reason to partner in this space. When you think about trying to stand up essentially a different business model on your own, given how strapped some of our organizations are today, Well, I think you make a really good point, Brianna, and you set this up with what the payment landscape is at the beginning. This is still a care model that is, while components of it have been around for a while, we don't have solid reimbursement in a lot of cases because it is still innovating. We're still in those early innovative iterative stages of trying to figure out the best way to do this. And we don't have that proof of principle to demand the reimbursement yet. It is hard work. We've been having some really interesting conversations with members, both in the care at home and the digital space, in terms of how you think about the value that is derived from innovation. You could argue that financial impact isn't the greatest way to measure value. When we think about innovative care models, you have to make it sustainable. But where do components like access come into play? We've talked a little bit about patient experience. How do you measure and capture the value in those domains in addition to the financial impact and kind of the hard dollars that could be gained through putting a care at home model in place? Those intangibles are really important components of thinking about it when you're in this space. And you mentioned the patient experience piece, and we know that consumerism is a big part of this. And if that builds consumer loyalty to your brand because you met them where they wanted to be met, there's downstream things that we just can't yet measure because we just haven't had enough experience. So I think that's some of the intangibles to think about as well. So, Joe, any wrap-up thought that you'd like to add? I think something important to keep in mind goes back to even if there's not near-term financial reimbursement, there are industry structural forces that are pushing us in this direction. I'll point specifically to the health plans, which have fared much better in the recent years than our provider partners in many cases, especially here in 2022. They are taking the opportunity to invest in a lot of these services that overlap with the care at home services. Virtual, primary care, and home-based care are the three areas that we're seeing. A lot of health plans make very big investments, and a lot of this is coming together to really manage the episodes and control the total spend around the premium dollars. We encourage organizations not to lose sight of that, even in the face of the current headwinds of the current economic environment where there are some serious challenges. We know a lot of institutions are really struggling to break even here in 2022. It's important to still keep your eyes on the horizon and understand how reimbursement, how opportunities are going to take shape here in the not too distant future. I so appreciate your time today, Brianna and Joe, and sharing this discussion with me. And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in again to SG2 Perspectives. If you're interested in learning more about Care at Home, certainly reach out to us. Let us know what you're doing. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, 
comments or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Visient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at visientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.